if you know what a dovetail joint is, you open up a drawer, back of the drawer where the wood comes together, it's these dovetail joints, uh, kind of like your fingers coming together, right? And so Lauren was one half of the dovetail tail joint on the other half. Uh, last week we talked about Sardis, time to wake up, and one of the scriptures I left out, I leave out more than I put in in these lessons, was that very passage from John chapter 11, where Jesus calls Lazarus from the grave. So we're going into part two this week. Last week it was time to wake up. Today it's how to wake up. This would be a really bad time to go to sleep. <laughs> this is the one sermon you don't want to go, to go to sleep in. So stay awake because we're going to learn how to stay awake, how to wake up. If you, I'm also going to refer to a lot of um, things I mentioned uh, more in depth last week. And so if something doesn't kind of make sense here, doesn't quite make sense, you may want to pull it up on the web and listen to last week's because I, I, I laid a foundation for, for this week. But let's read together from Revelation chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who hold the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for you have... For I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has, what the Spirit says to the churches. And it is my prayer that we will listen and have an ear. This is a, a book that says there's a blessing when you listen to this letter, speaking of the whole letter. And I want you to think, and I mentioned this last week, I want you to be there. And part of my, the reason I show these videos of being in these places is I want you to be there. And I want you to sit down with the mind of the Christians in Sardis. And think about them reading for the very first time or listening to this letter being read to them for the very first time. Already going through chapter 1, they've been astonished by Christ's visitation to their beloved friend, and Apostle John. And this introduction brings them in contact with the glorious Christ, the Alpha, the Omega, the one dressed and described in such wondrous ways as one who has blazing eyes or a face shining like the sun, the brilliance of the, of the sun. And then the letter begins to address their sister congregations. And they know some of these people in these different churches. And it, it takes the pathway of the road that goes around goes to Ephesus, uh, an important city, goes north to Smyrna, further north to Pergamon. It's, it, now it's turned southeast and it's gone through Thyatira. And now it comes to Sardis. And they hear the words to the angel of the church in Sardis right. And they hear these words and they sit up in anticipation. 
What is Jesus going to say to us? We've heard what he said to, to Ephesus. We've heard what he said to these other churches. And you know that all these churches have been addressed in a special way. They've been encouraged in a special way. They've been described in this particular passage here. It says, Jesus is the one who holds the seven spirits and who holds the seven stars. This Christ of glory, fully possessing the comforting and empowering spirit of God. He protectively holds these churches in his hands. He holds you in his hands. And perhaps these stars could also refer to the future because so many people believe in astrology and follow the fate of the stars. And maybe he's saying he holds the future in his hands. And so those are such comforting thoughts. And your sister churches know all about you. You're an active church. You're a busy church. You're an alive church. That's how, how you, people know you. You're not unaware of your problems and your struggles and your needs of improvement. There's always room for development to, to grow. And you eagerly wait for some kind of praise from, God, from Christ here before turning to maybe some obvious correction that has to take place. And then the hammer drops, and so does your heart. You have a reputation alive, but here's the stark truth, dead. And a dead person can do nothing to help themselves. Why would we think a dead church can do something to help themselves? And it's then that the wonderful words of the resurrected Savior calls out, wake up. Wake up. I believe that these words were just as Jesus called Lazarus from the dead. Come out. He's waking up a dead church here. And this is the only hope in death. The one who has been risen, the one who has described himself already as the firstborn from the dead in chapter 1. He told John, I'm the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to Hades and death. And he calls this dead church. He commands this death, dead church, wake up. This is the only hope for our brothers and sisters in Sardis. These were real people living a real life in a real place. A real church that was once proclaimed dead, but called to life by the author of life. Last week, I had talking to Matthew, my son Matthew, and he said, I wonder what it's going to be like for someone who was deaf, never heard anything, born deaf, never heard anything, who becomes a Christian in the first words he'll ever hear is the command of God to wake up. Wow. The first word they'll ever hear, the first sound is the sound of Jesus calling them back to life. And I think that's an amazing thought to think. Not only will he call me to life, but those who have never heard his name, never heard a sound, will be called to life too. I was in Sardis last uh, April. I showed you three videos last week. I'm going to show you one this week. And these 
as I've said, are just uh, my thoughts while I was there. I walked around, I thought, I read the scriptures, and then I videoed my, myself. A lot of times I made mistakes. I said the wrong thing, uh, and uh, I, I don't think I made too many mistakes on this one, but let, let me, uh, it's about a minute long here of uh, some thoughts about life in a dead church. It must have been a shock for the people of Sardis, the Christians of Sardis, to get this letter and say, that said, uh, you think you're alive, but you're dead. And probably s several people looked at themselves and wondered, is that true of me? The good news was, he continued and he said, there are a few though, who are okay. They're, they are still wearing those robes of white. They're still worthy. Their names will not be taken out of the book of life. And so even in the midst of a dead church, there was a handful of people who were alive. Uh, interesting that a dead church can still have life in it. And that was the encouragement to the, to, to the whole church. It's like, you wake up. I mean, you're not dead forever. Wake up. You can wake up. You can turn. You can repent. Uh, you can change your lives, and you, you can go from being a dead church to a church that is alive. Don't you love the birds? <laughs> they were alive. How can you know you're being called to wake up? How can you know that? Unlike physical death, it's possible to be dead spiritually and not know it. I don't think the Sardis Christians thought they were a dead church. I, thought, I think they thought they were alive. And so how can you know that you're dead? And that's the question that came to me as I thought about this. What if I'm dead and I don't know it? What can I do? How can I know this? You know, one of the saddest passages in the Bible to me is Judges chapter 16, verse 20, speaking of Samson, and it said, but he did not know the Lord had left him. Wow. He didn't know it. The Lord had left him. The Spirit of God had left him, and he didn't know it. Can I, can I be in the same position? How can the Spirit of can? and then I ask myself, can the Spirit of God leave a Christian because it's a different time, uh, you know, the, uh, in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. In the New Covenant, can the Spirit leave a Christian? And I'm not sure I know the answer to that, but I do know this. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, it says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. You can quench the Spirit. You can put Him out. You can make Him from a blazing fire to just a little smoldering wick, I guess, by the way you live. It's possible to fall asleep. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30 said, Many of you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. And there's a lot of questions about, well, were they dead? Were they just asleep like the Sardis Christians? I don't know. But it's possible to fall asleep in your Christianity, in your, in your, uh, in your, fa in your faith. And so I asked, the, uh, so I wanted to find, what, well, what's some symptoms of spiritual death? And if you go to Hebrews chapter 6, I asked four questions that I got from these from this passage uh, that, that I think will help us to, to answer, look at ourselves and say, am I spiritually dead? Four questions. The first question is this, what's growing in my life? Verse 7 and 8, land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing from God. But land produce, that produces thorns and thistles are worthless. And a danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. 
He's not giving you a farming lesson, okay? In the context here, he's saying, what's growing in your life? What's going on in, in your life? Are you, what are you producing? Look at your life and see what it's producing. Uh, what's going on in your emotions? Uh, are you growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Are there weeds in your life, spiritual weeds in your life? We could spend the whole lesson on this. This is a whole sermon, by the way. We're going to just touch on it here. Second question. What accompanies my walk? Look, look at verse 9 and 10. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. What's, going, what's my walk like? As I'm walking in my Christian life, if I'm going through my Christian life, what's accompanying my salvation? Faith? Grace, peace, love, joy, maturity, service. Are these are the things that are happening in my life? Do I find myself serving others? Do I find myself joyful? Do I find myself maturing? Do I find myself giving grace as I've received grace? Am I a, a person at peace with God and others? What's accompanying my salvation? Verse six in, uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. Uh, am I diligent? Uh, Got to find my numbers here. We, we want each of you to, know, to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. How diligent are you? Are you a lazy Christian? Well, lazy people usually fall asleep, don't they? Are you a lazy Christian or are you a diligent Christian? Are you a person out there doing the work? That's good questions to ask ourselves. And the last one is this. How focused am I on Jesus? Chapter 12, verse 2. He says, uh, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Are you looking to Jesus? How centered is Jesus in your life? We're going to talk a lot more about that in a moment. So how can I be aware if, if I answer these questions? You know, my, my walk is not the type of walk it should be. Weeds are growing in my life. Uh, things are happening that I'm a lazy Christian. Things need to change. So how can I be aware that God is calling me to wake up if I'm asleep or dead? How do, you, how do I know that I am being called by God to wake up? couple of quick three things. Your conscience convicts you. You feel this nudge in your conscience. Sometimes when you're reading your scriptures or, or if you're a dead Christian or a sleep Christian, you're usually not reading too much. But as you're being forced to listen to a lesson, your conscience just pricks you just a little, a nudge. You feel a nudge. And you think, I should or I shouldn't. And when you feel that, it's God trying to wake you up, trying to say, listen, listen, that's what you need to do. You feel yourself at that time resisting. You ever felt yourself resist? Ah, that's just Alan. That's just so-and-so. Uh, yeah, he, those, that's spiritual people. So you resist what your conscience is telling you to do. Often we need to change, but there's an evil presence also that's nudging us to resist. We get the word of God nudging us to change, and we get the word of Satan nudging us to resist. 
Over in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, it says, Holding on to faith and a good conscience. Hold on to this good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. You didn't listen to your conscience and your faith has been shipwrecked. If you harden your conscience, you're going you're to end up shipwrecked, shipwrecking, shipwrecking, that's hard to say, your faith. And number three, there's something to do. There's something you need to change in your life. You need to have the humility to recognize it, and you have to have the courage to admit it and to make those things, make those changes. What are some of these things? We're going to look at it in, uh, after I tell you a little bit about Sardis. We're going to look at some of the things he tells you you must do. Sardis was a problem. The problem, I believe, with Sardis is it was a church that blended in with the city. This was a church that just blended in with the way things were going on around, uh, around it. Persecution did not kill Sardis. False teaching did not kill Sardis. Ephesus had this great pressure to worship the empire, emperor. You cannot imagine. It's only about 70 miles to the west. It's not that far away. But the pressure of these Christians in Ephesus and the things they went through, the the, the struggle, not the struggles, but the <coughs> persecutions they went through were enormous. Smyrna, right up north of them, they went through persecutions. Some of them went to jail. Some of them died. You go up to Pergamum and you go down to Thyatira and there was false teachings, try, teachers trying to change the way they're, they're thinking. And Sardis didn't have any of that. They seemed to have so blended in with the society that they were in no danger of physical or doctrinal persecution. It was a city that was filled with pleasure. Pleasure of music, the theater. They had a theater, and it's the only one that I, 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 I know of. I'm sure there's others. A theater that was connected to a stadium. Most places you had a theater at one place, and you had a stadium in another place. But they had them both connected together. It's like they just, all the entertainment was right there in one place. The Jew, Jewish synagogue was big. And they didn't seem to mind the Christian presence. They just kind of all got along. Uh, the, the idea of let's get along, don't rock the boat, live and let live, that's the type of city that Sardis was. And the Christians in Sardis just drifted into that same attitude. Let's just get along. Don't rock the boat. Whatever they do, that, that's their business. That's their business, and I, you know, I'll do my business. They avoided conflict with the, uh, with the surrounding culture. They drifted into the sleep that Jesus called death. And when I looked at this last two weeks when I've studied this, each church, by the way, has convicted me personally. I have seen myself in each of these churches. But this one really kicked me in the head. I said, man, I think that's the church in America. That may be the church right here. We live in a culture that is founded in Christian principles. And I know there's a lot of argument about that, but it's true. The people who came over here originally were trying to escape religious persecution. They wanted to worship in peace. They set up our Constitution and our Declaration of Independence based in some Christian principles. And because of that and the current trend to, you know, to be tolerant and, and live and let live, that's our, our trend right now. We just have this tendency, I think, to blend in with the culture. 
Because it's hard for us to separate sometimes culture and Christianity. Is this culture or is this Christianity? And, and for those who travel and have been overseas, you, this, you can see it a lot better, I think, at times. But, you know, it's just easy just to drift into the culture of the day. And it's not, I'm not saying that we should seek to offend. I'm not saying that we should look for a spiritual fight with other people. The scriptures tell us as much as is within you, live at peace with all people. All right, so there's a place for that. We're not saying seek to be a martyr. We're not saying seek persecution. The Bible actually talks about avoiding persecution. But what we are called to do as a Christian is to speak up, to let your light shine, to share your faith. And if you do that in a godly way, you will have opposition. You'll come. And what do you do? What do you do when you come up with that opposition? Do you just, oh, well, back off, live and let live, let it happen? I didn't mean to offend you, I'm sorry. Or do you actually speak up when you're supposed to speak up? At this time, we're not to slack away from what is right, but we're to live in such a way that makes our faith clear. That's our problem. That was Sardis's problem. And so Christ told these people to do something. This, this is the way these people are. They're just go along with life, live and let live. And Jesus said, I'm going to tell you how to change. I'm going to tell you what you need to do. Already he said, wake up. We, had, we ended the sermon last week here. And that word there, wake up, means keep being awake. Now that you're awake, stay awake. Now that you're awake, don't go back to sleep. It's in a verb form that just means keep on keeping on. Don't fall back asleep. Okay, how? How do I do that? Number two, strengthen. Strengthen. This is in a different verb form. I'm sorry to give you a little bit of grammar lessons. But it's important because it's how we, how we act is based on what the scripture is saying here. This is not keep on being strengthened. Keep on doing it. It means you make a decision. It's time to make a decision. I woke you up. Now you make a decision. It is time to make a determined decision, a definite choice, a drastic change. You have to up here say, I'm going to change now. Now that I'm up, now that I'm out of bed, now that I'm risen from the spiritual death, I'm going to make a decision. It's not something I'm going, oh, I'm going to do this over a period of time. I know you'll be patient with me. I'm going to grow. There's other passages that talk about growth uh, of maturity, but this is not talking about that. This is ER room fixing. There's a problem and has to be fixed right now. This is not going to the gym and training and getting stronger over a period of time. This is making a decision. There's something I have to do right now. Strengthen, he says, what is about to die. There's some life there. There was some life in this congregation. Even a dead congregation, there was some life here. And he says, strengthen what is about to die. How? I, you know, I asked the question, well, how do you do that? Because he really doesn't say here too much how to do it. But this is what I'm sure of. Not by busyness. Not by committees or programs or a motivational speaker or super cool church assemblies. You can be dead and do all those things. That was the problem that day and time, they were doing a lot of things and they were dead. And that's not how you wake up. That's not how you strengthen yourself. How are you strengthened? 
by eating and drinking. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. And it's only by partaking of the scriptures and putting that into practice <clears throat> that we can be strengthened. <clears throat> when Julia and I counsel people, people come to us and they have a problem. Many times we'll say, so how's your Bible study going? How's your Bible reading going? I can say, I think 100% of the time, I always hesitate because what's 100%? There's always an exception, but almost 100% of the time, they will answer, I haven't been reading the Bible. No wonder you're weak. No wonder you're having problems. You're not feeding on the bread of life. You're not drinking the living water. He says here, I have not found your deeds complete. This word complete can mean something like filling up. Like you have a glass of water, you fill it up all the way. Or more biblically over in Matthew uh, 13, when the nets were full, it can mean just filled up to the, to the brim. But most of the time, this word is translated fulfilled, as in Christ fulfilling the scriptures. And that's what I think it's saying here. He's saying, you... Not that, you, that's not that you're not busy enough. That's how we normally translate this. Our, our preachers are good at doing it this way. Look, you're just not busy enough. This is what you got to do. Now, you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. And when I remember that Sardis was a doing congregation, I don't think he's saying you, need to, you're, you're just, you haven't been working hard enough. You need to work harder. He's not saying that. He's saying your purpose is not complete. You haven't fulfilled your purpose, your place in God's sight. You have a place in God's sight, and you need to fulfill that. You need to find what that place is, and you need to uh, fulfill that. And your purpose is this, to be filled up. That's your purpose, to be filled up with what? The Spirit, Ephesians 5, 18, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ, Philippians 1, Verse 11, you see, it's not doing a lot more stuff, getting a lot more busy. It's saying you need to be filled with the Spirit and be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Jesus, not from your own righteousness. Your ultimate fulfillment is to glorify God in all that you do. Colossians says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all this in the name of, in the, for the glory of God. Are you living for the glory of God? That's your purpose. Not to get busier, but to live for God. That's your purpose. And then I found this neat scripture. That I didn't have room on the screen. In Colossians chapter 2, uh, verse 6, it says this. So then, just as you have received Christ as Lord, Christ Jesus as Lord, just like you've received him, you're connected with continue to live in him. This is your walk. This is your life. You continue to live in him, rooted and being built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thanksgiving. This is the way you're supposed to live your life. That's what it means, fulfilling your purpose. These people were not living for the Lord. They were, the fruit of righteousness were not in their life. They weren't filled with the Spirit. They weren't glorifying God in all they do. When you, can, when you just say, well, we'll just drift along with society, live and let live, you are not glorifying God. That was their problem. That was their struggle. So he says, strengthen, but then second he says, remember. Let me get back over to... to uh, my, my Bible's falling apart. 
literally. So uh, he says, remember, let me find it here. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Now, this remember means keep on remembering. This is something you have to keep doing. That strengthen is make a decision. I'm going to change. This one is there's something to remember, and you need to keep on remembering this. Put this in the forefront of your thinking. That's what the word means. It's supposed to be right here in front of your face. That's how you remember it. What do you think about all day long? What's on your mind? Is God there? Is Jesus there? Or is he in the back room of your life? If he's back there. I mean, I've got busy stuff to do here. I've got important things to do. I have a job to do. And you, you just kind of push Jesus in the back there. And so when you have these struggles and problems in your life, Jesus is somewhere in the way far back room instead of right there. And that's what this word means. It says, put him right there. On the job, he needs to be right there in front of your face. Right there, and you're dealing with your children and your husband and your wife. Where's Jesus? Remember him. And this is not recalling, I always forget the English way of saying this, or the American data, data, which is it in America? Is data here? Is data there? All right? So I learned it data, but it's data. It's not re- we're pulling out data, data, all right? It's not pulling out information or remembering stories about Jesus, but it's recalling the centrality of the death, burial, resurrection, life of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 says, I want to remind you what is of first importance. Is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ a part of your daily life? Or is it just when you take a piece of cracker in a, in a juice? And the reason we do it every week is because that is a weekly reminder at the beginning of the week to remember him the rest of the week. And that's where we fall short. How does this affect your behavior? In times of stress, does Christ come to the forefront of your thinking? Or do you think, what do I need to do right now? Or is Christ at the forefront of your thinking? When things upset you, do you think about how Christ wants you to act in this situation? Or do you just react to the situation? You're not remembering if you're reacting. And that's what he's saying here. You want to stay awake? You need to remember. And then he says, obey. Same verb tense. Keep on doing this. You don't just obey once. It's a continuous obeying. Keep on obeying. So the application is right here. Put this into practice. When you've strengthened yourself, you're in God's word, you're listening to it. He says, now put it into practice. It's not good enough just to remember what you should do. Oh, I should do this or I shouldn't do this. But you got to do it. That's what he means by obey. A better word than obey is keep. But it's an old English word, the way it's meant to be translated. That word keep implies and means obedience, but it's much deeper than that. The word means to guard. The word means to uh, protect The word means to watch over it. It implies value. There's something valuable here, and I'm keeping watch over this. I'm protecting this uh, because the things that you keep, even in in your day, I'm going to keep this. What does that mean? It means you value it. You're going to put it away. It's important to you. My my, uh, grandson, Hayden, wrote a, a, a Mother's Day card to my daughter, Judith, and it was a wonderful little, you know, Mother's Day card, 
And it was beautifully expressed that, you know, her cooking is better than five-star restaurant and so on. And I, it was on Facebook. And so I, on Facebook, I said, you need to keep that. And if she said, nah, I would have said, send it to me. I want to keep that. Because you value something. And that's what God's word is. When you hear it, you, it's important to you. You look at this and you see the wisdom behind this. You say, oh, life works when I do it this way. I'm going to protect this. I'm going to keep it. I'm going to hold it close to me. I value this. That's why I do these things. And that's why I obey it. And last, he says, repent. And this is the same word as the um, strengthen. Same verb tense. Make a determined decision. And it's almost like he's booking both of these. He says, now you've got to repent. You've got to make a decision here. You've got to change your mind. Repentance means this. This is my definition of repentance. A change of mind that leads to a change of thinking that leads to a change of direction. That's what repentance is. Not like the football player says, yeah, I made a 360-degree change in my life. <laughs> yeah, some of you had to think about that, didn't you? <laughs> some got it right away. It's a 180-degree change in your life. You're going down one direction, you're doing certain things, and you make a decision, I'm going to turn around, and it, it starts up with your mind, I'm going to make a decision that I'm going to change, and then I'm going to change the way I'm thinking, I'm not going to, change, I'm not going to think this way anymore, and I'm going to go a different direction, I'm going to do things in a different way. You haven't been reading God's Word? Repent. Pick up your Bible. Start reading it. Well, I don't know where to start. Proverbs. All right, there's your. That, if you if you're not start, you need to start start in chapter ten of Proverbs, ten eleven. That's those 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 one little one you know verse smart things that God says. Hey, you're going to be wise if you do this, and you're wise if you do this, and wise if you do this. Go to the Psalms. Read the shortest gospel, Mark. It'll take you twenty minutes. If you're a slow reader, forty minutes. Read it slowly. Read a chapter a day. You can have it done in three weeks, approximately, a little over two, two and two days. Repent. Start reading. You haven't controlled your temper? Stop making excuses. Repent. Change the way you think. Control your temper. I, well, you just don't understand. I, I do understand. This is what I understand. God said repent. He said to change. He said stop making excuses. Control your temper. I, I just, I, you, you show no joy. Repent. Show joy. Express your joy in the Lord. Repent. Change your life. You've placed pleasure and fun over doing what's right. Repent. Live as God directs you. Which goes back to reading the Bible so you know how, what God's direction is. There's consequences. Verse 3, second part. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I come to you. We talked about this last week. Do you remember how the walls, your walls were breached, he is saying? Do you remember how these walls and this vertical cliff going up to walls? Twice in your history, you were asleep on the job, and your city was taken. You lost your city you lost lives, and it's going to happen again if you don't wake up. How do you want to 
What do you want to be doing when the Lord comes again? Whether it's in your physical death or when he comes the second time. Do you want to be living for the world or living for him? How do you want him to catch you when he comes again? Asleep or dead in the middle of a sin? Do you want to be found arguing or complaining or gossiping? Or do you want to be found encouraging someone and being joyful in the Lord and sharing your faith? with? How do you want God to find you? That's what he's talking about, just real practical. We're not talking about physical sleep here. And then he gives some encouragement here. He says, um, but there's a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. There's a few. There's some who have not soiled their clothes. And I told you last week about in Sardis, once a year, the, 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 they would have these uh, people honoring Sibel, the goddess. And they would walk through the streets, on, and people would line the streets on both sides, and they would start cutting themselves, and blood was going everywhere. And it was this honor to get your, your, your clothes splattered with the blood of these people honoring this goddess. And I think that's what he's referring to. I mean, he's saying, listen, don't get too close to the world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. You know, there's certain things you need to stay away from. There are certain things that you, I'm pointing to you, each individual, that you know you need to stay away from. That person might be strong enough to do it, but you need to stay away from it. Your clothes will be splattered. Get away from that stuff. Stay away from that stuff. Walk away. Run away from it. Whatever it is, you know it will stain you, so get away from it. Don't make excuses. And he says, those who are in white garments, they've stayed close to Christ. That's been their focus. That's, the, that's been in the forefront of their mind. That's what, where the Christ has been right there. Because our worth and our purity is not based in our pure actions or our pure motives, because none of us have pure actions or pure motives, but it's based in your walk with God. You've been walking with God. And he says, and that walk's going to continue, and you will continue to walk with me. Are you walking with God? Are you walking along with him? That walk is going to continue. And he says this wonderful thing. And I'm just rushing through the end here. Christ will confess or acknowledge his name before his father and the angels. I can't imagine that. What, what does that mean? Will he say, what will he say? God, I want to acknowledge, I want to, I want to present to you Phil Lowry. I did it right here, but we can imagine Jesus doing it in front of everyone. I want to acknowledge you before my Father. Wow. And I think it has to do with how we live our lives, how we walk. My question is this. How did this church do? How did, how did Sardis do? And one thing that hit me, and I'm probably show it when I get to Laodicea, because that's where, when it really hit me. I think these churches did well. We're always taught, oh, they're dead. In the fourth century, there's a church building. It was built right up against the, the uh, temple of Artemis. And I don't think that was Christians saying, okay, we're blending in with the society here. You know, that we've been allowed to have a little land right up here with the temple. 
I think it was their way of reaching out to the people who were going into that temple, and they're saying, no, you can come in here. Four centuries later, three centuries later, 300 years later, the church in Sardis was there. I think they woke up. I think they got busy in the way they were supposed to be busy. I think they started obeying God's word. And here's another reason, because I saw this myself, this next slide. I was walking along the main street of Sardis, and I was all by myself. There's a wonderful thing about going in April. No one was around. Hardly anyone was around. A bunch of school kids came, and then they left. And I'm walking into each of the little stores. There are stores lined up. And I came here, and I mean, walked in the door, and that's what I saw. And I go, wow, this is in the second century. This is very soon after this letter was written. And the, the title over this place was, it was where they dyed clothes. This is not a baptistry. This is where the workers dyed wool. And they had carved into their dye vat the cross. Because when people came in and said, I want to buy something from you. I want you to dye something from me. They knew, oh, what is that? Christians. I think they said, you know, we need to wake up. And one of the first ways we need to wake up, we need to let people know we're Christians. And so they started carving crosses. They started letting people know. They started telling people who they were. Now, I know you can put a fish on your car and it doesn't make any difference. But that, that's okay. It's okay to carve in crosses. I think these people were saying, we need to wake up. Jesus came. He said, wake up. And it's time for us to do that. I want to quickly tell you about a, a couple. And you can read this uh, from a blog called Why the Church Doesn't Need Any More Coffee Bars. Kimberly and Melkor. This was written three weeks after Melkor died. He died of cancer, 31 years old. And she writes, and I'm not going to read in her whole blog, of course. I put that up there so you can, if you want to read the whole thing, you can. But she says, more and more in my social media feeds, I've been seeing a lot of churches boast of the cool, trendy new initiatives that they have begun. I've seen pictures of coffee bars that resemble Starbucks. I've seen light, lighting that resembles one scene on Broadway. I've read catchy sermon titles and, how, and I've seen how people have, been, have brought the movies into their sermons. In so many of these posts, I see, all, I see all that churches are doing to attract new members, but I don't hear them talking about the power of Jesus. And then she says, her husband passed away uh, February 14th, 2017, after a two-year battle of cancer. She goes on, skipping down quite a bit. She says, as I, as I drive to church during the week, I'm not thinking that I wish the leadership of my church would read How to Grow Your Church Books and adopt cool sermon titles. I'm thinking how desperate I need Jesus. As I look at two young children who now have to grow up without their amazing dad by their side, I'm not thinking how cool it is that ministers are relating the message to a Hollywood film. I'm thinking how much I need Jesus. When church leaders sit around and discuss how they can reach people, I don't think they have the widow in mind. I don't think they have the cancer patient in mind. I don't think they have children, the children who are growing up without their parents in mind. I'm not paying attention to the church decor when I walk through the doors. 
I don't want to smell fresh brewed coffee in the lobby. I don't want to see a trendy pastor on the platform. Don't worry about that. I don't care about the graphics or props on the platform. Don't worry about that either. I'm hurting in a way that is almost indescribable. My days are spent working full-time. My nights are spent homeschooling and take caring, taking care of two young children. I don't have shared duties with a spouse anymore. Everything is on my place. And when I go to church, I desperately want to hear the Word of God. The lighting, coffee bars, revelant, re revelant messages... Graphics and other things are secondary underlined and serve no assistance to me during the darkest hours of my life. This is in no way a criticism of churches that have coffee bars, nice lighting, and catchy sermon titles. However, however, in everything that is done, we need to make sure that Jesus is at the center. The church doesn't need any more coffee bars. They don't need the lighting. They don't need the concerts. They don't need the trend setting. They don't need the couches on the platform. They don't need to dim the lights to attract people. Tell a person how God has changed his life. Show them the love of God through your actions. Demonstrate how God helped you through the darkest of storms. Church leaders, remember, church leaders, remember that you are not just trying to track the hip and cool to your church. You're reaching widows. You're reaching children who don't have a parent. You're reaching someone who's battling a disease. You're reaching a person going through a divorce. You're reaching a businessman who thinks they have all they need. You're reaching the hurting. The only thing they need is Jesus. That's what Sardis missed. They missed Jesus. They had all the stuff, whatever way first century Christians did it, they had all the stuff. They had all the programs. They were full of busyness, aliveness, quotes. And they had forgotten Jesus. They weren't centered where they needed to be centered. And that's what I want to encourage us to be and to do, not here on Sunday morning only. I mean, I can promise you that that I'm going to center you on Jesus when, I, when, when you come here. But I want you to promise yourself that that's the center of your life when you walk out of here today. If it's not, we're going to sing an invitation song. 